ICE Theatres, the market's most immersive and high-end premium format. Because the light shall be treated like sound coming from everywhere. Discover the ICE Theatres experience and embark on an immersive odyssey beyond reality. ICE Theatres, meet us at CinemaCon with 2113A. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition, here for our final episode in our CinemaCon podcast series presented by ICE Theatres. It's Friday, April, I lost count, 42. It, it feels like we've been here for years, but it's done. Uh, everybody's catching their flight, uh, taking the car back to LA, and I hope that you uh, that we're keeping you company uh, during your journey. Thank you for listening to us all week. With me today, we've got our colleague and co-host, Rebecca Pauly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, and Romeo Duchesne uh, from the Box Office Company. Romeo, welcome back. Bonjour, mes amis. It feels good to be back. I feel like the first or third time I'm doing the podcast. Yeah. And uh, I start thinking I'm going to launch my ASMR uh, podcast channel very soon, no? Good, good, good. <laughs> not bad, not bad. Uh, I'm sorry, we, we already said all the French names in yesterday's episode, so we'll try to fit in Timothée Chalamet <laughs> at some point so you can pronounce those. Uh, and Rebecca, welcome back. Now, final podcast recording of the week. Uh, we go back to doing this weekly now. Oh, thank goodness. I, I think I just have enough voice left for this one episode, and then I'm just going to not say anything <laughs> for the next 48 hours. Well, we do have a lot to say right now because we're going to start off with a couple of uh, studio presentations. We've got the Paramount presentation, then we are going to go over the Lionsgate presentation that closed out CinemaCon 2023 on the studio side. And in our feature segment today, a special treat for our listeners, we have the entirety of the panel from International Day featuring uh, our CEO as moderator, Julian Marcel. He speaks with uh, Tony Chambers, the head of distribution over at Disney and Jane Hastings, the uh, CEO of Australia's Event Cinemas, two very influential executives when we talk about the global movie theater ecosystem, the exhibition business, distribution. They launch into so many great topics. You'll be able to hear that panel in its entirety in the second half of this episode. But in the first half, we've got movies to talk about. And we're talking about Paramount, Rebecca. That means we're talking about another Chris Aronson entrance at the Coliseum. Chris... Nicole Kidman Aronson, who gave a, a lovely <laughs> uh, dramatic reenactment of that famous or infamous. Uh, it's famous. It, it's Come on. Famous. It's a gift that keeps on giving for AMC. It's I love it. I love it. I think so. I think it, it's, great. it's that snipe that we have that commercial when you go to an AMC theater where, where Nicole Kidman serenades you with the magic of movie going good at a place like this. <laughs> Chris Aronson, the president of domestic distribution over at Paramount Pictures had a nice rendition with a couple of uh, lyric changes to open up the presentation. After his entrance, he always does a different themed entrance at these things, dating back to his time over at 20th Century uh, Fox. This time around, it was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle themed entrance, and fittingly for a studio executive, crawled out of a sewer holding a box of pizza. Though I will, I, I will call you out here. That is the joke that Seth Rogen made later on during the Paramount presentation. He said it's not the first time it's, <laughs> it's appropriate to have seen. 
I don't know. And, and well, and then after after uh, some those moments of, of jollity and, and people dancing on CinemaCon and Chris Aronson handing out slices of pizza, uh, he wanted to talking about pricing for his a favorite bit. topic, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so let's go into that because uh, earlier this week at CinemaCon on day one, actually, in, in the first day of panels, Chris Aronson was part of a panel on the National Cinema Day Initiative, and a huge chunk of that centered around the topic of ticket pricing. Of course, National Cinema Day for our listeners that know was a one-day initiative on a Saturday in the U.S. Uh, on September, on a weekend where nothing was opening, where every ticket, every showtime was $3 at every theater. Uh, that was a great initiative, and it taught us some lessons. And Chris Aronson's sense has basically been espousing uh, for lower ticket pricing. Uh, it's been a very interesting, I think, position for the guy that released the highest grossing movie of the year last year, mm-hmm. telling his exhibitor partners, hey, maybe give me less money with your ticket sales because well, we need more We need more volume in attendance. That's what we're going for. Yeah, though, I mean, also, I, I have to say, I mean, he did cite in his opening remarks at the Paramount presentation, uh, the release of 80 for Brady, for which Paramount did really experiment with uh, a variable pricing structure with like a ton of differently themed preview screening. So they put their money where their mouth is on that one. Absolutely, that's an example with 80 for Brady where exhibitors were given the option to charge matinee prices for every showtime of that movie, basically to draw in the older demographic that at the time people were concerned weren't coming back. And like you mentioned, Rebecca, it's not just an executive saying, hey, everybody should charge less for movies except me. No, 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 mm-hmm. Paramount did this and did this to, very, uh, to a very good effect earlier this year with that title. So it's not coming out of nowhere. There's a great quote uh, that uh, Chris had in his remarks that that I'd like for you to read. Do you have that up? Yeah, he says, uh, we need to be realistic and acknowledge that pre-COVID theatrical admissions had been going down and ticket prices had only been going up. That means admitting that the status quo needs to be changed. We should be experimenting with variable pricing. Let's give audiences an offer they can't refuse. It's a great way of putting it, a very paramount way of putting it. Give audiences an offer they can't refuse. And uh, that kicked off, I think, a very interesting presentation for Paramount. After Chris Aronson left the stage, Brian Robbins, uh, head of the studio, came on. And Brian basically shared some great insights on how important theatrical is for Paramount these days. Uh, Not at the expense of the growth of Paramount Plus, their own streaming service, but this is another studio like the new Warner Brothers under David Saslav that does believe in windowing and has had great success with windowing. A quote from Brian Robbins in this Paramount presentation that I really took to uh, was when he was referencing the movie Smile. Remember Rebecca Smile, the horror movie? That was supposed to be straight to streaming. They pivoted. They went to theatrical. It was a great hit for the studio. Brian Robbins saying, streaming and theatrical are not a zero-sum game. We need theatrical to make streaming work. That's a great sentence right there. We need theatrical to make streaming work. And I think that was the tone of this presentation. Movies that are going to perform, I think, very competitively in the marketplace and that Paramount is going to keep until the window to go home, to go on that Paramount Plus service comes in and is going to be able to perform well under that uh, home entertainment window. Absolutely. And Smile, I mean, I have to imagine at least in part because of the people watching the film on streaming after its theatrical window was up, uh, that is officially getting a sequel. We don't know anything beyond that. It was mentioned very quickly. Also, there's going to be a third Sonic the Hedgehog movie, which had not been confirmed to this point, but I think given how much 
uh, the franchises has made with those first two, I don't think it would have come as a surprise to anyone. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a full-fledged franchise now for Paramount. And talking about franchises, the first movie we have on this presentation that we actually got to see footage from was, uh, fittingly, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem coming out on August 4th. Uh, Seth Rogen being very deeply involved with this project. Romeo, you looked up uh, the box office numbers for the last iteration that uh, that this franchise had under Paramount. What are those results? Yeah, the the previous one was in 2016, but let's remember that the, the two previous one was a live action movie, and this one, the upcoming one, is going to be an animated one. So yeah, the previous one in 2016 did $254 million worldwide, and the one before in 2014, so two years prior to that one, uh, almost half a billion, $485 million worldwide. But there was an animated one more recently. I, I don't remember that it got much traction. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it really had an impact in the culture, or at least it, it really didn't try to break through in the way that the last live action iteration attempted. I mean, they, they uh, Paramount, they hired like a dance crew to kick off a, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles themed dance crew. So it's, it's clear they're, they're really uh, putting a lot of weight behind this kind of reinvention of the franchise, kind of the, the driving force behind it. Um, and on deck at the presentation to discuss it was Seth Rogen, who um, talked about how, like, they're teenagers in this movie. And, you know, it's always, yeah. it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but they don't act like teenagers. They act like... Like ninjas. They yeah. act, they and act turtles. like adult Ninja ninjas. Turtles. Yes, uh, yeah, you're right. Adult Ninja Turtles. Yeah, and, and I, uh, you know, I, I really I really enjoyed this trailer. I think the animation looked neat. I know our producer, Chad, and, and myself, we both really like those... Um, there's 90 movies, 90 movies with guys just in giant, horrific looking like costumes. And yeah, all the, all the kind of versions of the franchise since then, I've, I've not particularly taken to, but yeah. this one is funny. It's just, just, you know, there's a lot of riffing. There's a lot of good humor. It looks fun. The animation is what drew me in. That's what you mentioned. Romeo, yeah. you, you are also a big fan of animation. What did you think of that? Yeah, no, I was very surprised by the, the level of animation. Uh, I was, uh, I was thinking about, I mean, I think they are trying to tend to the the style of Miles Morales Spider Man. Yeah, the Spider Verse. Like yeah, it has a little bit of that vibe, right? Yeah, definitely. But uh, but yeah, I feel I feel it's going to be a real challenge for Paramount. But I also feel some similarities from the SpongeBob SquarePants uh, Paramount movies too. Yeah. That's well, like a younger for a younger audience. Very really, like kids audience. I I, I'm not coming, that yeah. familiar with with the SpongeBob movies, but there was a mention of a SpongeBob title coming up on the schedule. Uh, Romeo, let me get the title here because <laughs> there's um, been so many of them. But I think it's called the SpongeBob movie Search for Square Pants. Yep. That's dated for May 23rd, 2025. It, it's still a while from to now. Coincide with the franchise's 25th anniversary. Yeah, there's a. That was Ramsey Nato, the president of animation and development at Paramount Animation, introducing that title. A lot of animated uh, titles from the Nickelodeon section of, of the Paramount uh, larger company were introduced today. Um, we got the title for an upcoming animated Transformers film, Transformers 1. Um, we didn't really see anything other than a title treatment, but according to uh, to Ramsey Nato, it is like a, a similarly kind of bold animation style. She really kind of talked that up a bit. Um, yeah, the SpongeBob movie, uh, one that we saw really nothing of aside from a picture was uh, the full-length animated movie Avatar The Last Airbender based off of the Nickelodeon show that is has achieved well-deserved popularity amongst children and adults. There was a live-action movie that M. Night Shyamalan directed uh, back in the aughts, and it is kind of 
one of the most infamously awful and horrible, like, I don't want to talk about it anymore, but if they if they screw this up, I'm going to be mad. But this one, this is one that if they do it right, has a huge fan base. That's uh, the Last Airbender animated title, yeah. right? So it's not going to be live action. They tried that. It didn't work out with Shyamalan. They're going with this I animation. I think they're doing live action somewhere else, too, but, like, that's that's a different Yeah, thing. it's a different topic. Yeah. But when we talk about animation here from uh, Paramount, because they are releasing a surprising amount of animated movies. We've got a Paw Patrol sequel coming out in uh, September of this year. And then it, it's still a ways away in <laughs> Valentine's Day 2025. But this is probably, we talk about star power at these presentations. I did not expect to see Rihanna at CinemaCon. Rihanna showed up. Like, yeah. Dang. Very, very pregnant Rihanna. It was great. The last time I saw pregnant Rihanna was at the Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah, I mean, and, she, and we had another really big name show up later in the presentation. I think Paramount, like... I know we've seen Oprah. Oprah showed up for to promote The Color Purple a few days back, but I think Paramount definitely won with a Star Power game this yeah, year. Yeah, the Star Power game was big here for Paramount. That Rihanna uh, project that she's involved in is the Smurf movie. That's coming out Valentine's Day of 2025. Uh, she's having a big role in the production of this movie. She's, she's Smurfette. She's playing Smurfette. She's producing. She's writing songs for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting take on animation. That wraps up the animation animated part of the uh, slate here on the Paramount side. But live action, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, You mentioned Transformers 1 a second ago, Rebecca. And Romeo, we know that there's a new Transformers movie coming out this June, Transformers Rise of the Beasts. This is a franchise that 10, 15 years ago played a massive role at the global box office. What's the benchmarking for this Transformers franchise coming into the summer? Yeah, I was so hyped when I was a young adult for the, the last franchise with Shia LaBeouf and, uh, and Margot, uh, no, Megan, Megan Fox. Megan Fox, yeah, I was so Margot hyped. Fox, yeah. Mar- Mar- Margot Robbie, Mar- Megan <laughs> Fox. Get your, get your star in, power correct. I'm still, in, I'm still in Barbie right now, so yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, let's not forget the last night released in 2017 did, did $605 million worldwide and $130 million domestic, so which is a 79% market share outside of the US. It's 79. Quite... So four out of five like audience members that saw this around the world were outside of the domestic market for the last Transformers title. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is going to be a big overseas play, I think, for our international colleagues. Mm-hmm. We got to see some footage. I spoke with uh, filmmaker Stephen Capel Jr., uh, for the issue of the magazine that we have out right now. A great interview. I'm such a fan of his. He's such a good filmmaker. I love what he did with Creed 2. I think visually he treated that movie in a way that not many people would have. This is his first film since Creed 2. I really liked what we saw, guys. Visually, this Transformers movie looks really interesting. Yeah, once again, the, the trailer was great. Sadly, I don't have any viewership data for this trailer since it was released like seven hours ago. But I do have some viewership data for the teaser trailer was released last December. And the figures are quite great. Actually, they are crushing the last trailer from Bumblebee in 2018. Really? Yeah. So th- this is this is tracking in terms of interest well ahead of yeah. Bumblebee. Yeah, definitely. So I think we could see this one uh, above $100, $120 million domestic-wise. So. I think that'd be a, a, a nice little bit of change here. And if we're talking about, what, 80% of that market share coming out of the U.S., a half billion worldwide, 
isn't impossible to think about in no. this century. No, no, yeah, let's not forget that Bumblebee did uh, almost half a billion, $468 million worldwide. Yeah. And it does look like uh, Paramount is kind of framing this as a, as a sequel to Bumblebee. That film was like, it was a spinoff. It was set in the 80s, so it had a kind of like retro feel. Uh, this one's set in the 90s in, in New York City. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it, that's not a franchise that was ever particularly on my radar, but if it's good, I'll go see it, you know, if I start hearing good things. Yeah, and as a European, I think I've seen a Porsche, a Porsche, like we say. Okay. Yeah. yeah so. I'm, I'm going to let you pronounce these words the way you want to, man. I'm not going <laughs> to. That's right. To pronounce I'm not it in an American way because there. I keep hearing Porsche, but it's Porsche. So. Just give me R. <laughs> yeah, if you give me R's to roll, I'll roll the R's, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to compete with that. <laughs> All right. Let's keep on going here on the schedule. Another live action title from Paramount, Bob Marley, One Love, coming out. In uh, January 12, 2024, uh, we saw a teaser for this uh, title. We still don't know too much. I mean, it, it could go any way here, but I think the teaser was compelling enough to yeah. really launch a, a marketing campaign in the coming months. I mean, it looked like a fairly standard biopic material, but that we haven't had one of those before on Bob Barley, who's a hugely influential figure in music history. So, um, yeah, it, I, I, it kind of made me curious about parts of his life I didn't know about. So. And that's coming out, as I mentioned, in January of 2024. Looking uh, on in next year's releases uh, here from Paramount, uh, it's interesting that we actually got to see some footage of this title, A Quiet Place Day One, a prequel to uh, the two power, uh, the two Quiet Place movies. Two that, Quiet Places. <laughs> that came out not too long ago. Really, the last one came out in... Uh, 2021? It was one of... Yeah. came out in 2020? It, it, yeah, yeah, it's 2021. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I'm, I'm like brain dead at this no, point. No, no. I, I, it was supposed to come out in 2020. Remember, we went to the press screening in 2020 and then everything changed mm-hmm. and the movie didn't get released commercially yeah. for like a year later when I forgot about it. Well, and John Krasinski really putting a lot of work into promoting that film and its theatrical run when it was one of the only things people could see. Uh, we, we did see a sizzle reel of him kind of like taking, like almost a little roadshow effect of him welcoming people back to cinemas. Yeah, because that's what he did, right? It, yeah. w- when A Quiet Place Part 2 came out, he went to different cities, different movie theaters around the country and personally welcomed yeah. people. He, he put in the work. He got the airline miles racked up. <laughs> and a shout out to the AMC Sunset Place 24 uh, that was featured in that Sissel reel. Uh, that was my high school theater. Apologies to anyone who worked at that movie theater between 1998 and 2004. I'm a different person now. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> uh, and that's not the only John Krasinski movie uh, that was uh, profiled in this presentation. I'm clear, but the the, the uh, A Quiet Place Day One, he is actually not directing it. That right, right, right. That is not. Sarnowski who directed the recent film Pig, but like... He, he is something that obviously came from films he did direct. Uh, I, I assume he's still a producer on it. Um, but yeah, they also had a film that he is directing and writing called If, um, which was described as a, a, a live action Pixar film kind of kind of deal um, about imaginary friends, like a, a live action uh, CGI hybrid. Like Paramount seems to be all in on like the John Kosrinski business and empire or whatever he's whatever he's uh he's growing from his of original movies and that's good of <laughs> original movies they're not yeah. giving him an ip that they have there yeah. from nickelodeon or viacom he's going out there and proposing films that 
are, are unique, and I like that about and him. He's putting in the work. He's doing yeah. that, that the the press push for Quiet Place. He was here at CinemaCon to, to present two films. So yeah, I think it's it's interesting to see uh, where his career is going to go from here. And the footage of If I thought was interesting. We did get to see footage of this title, mm-hmm. and that movie's not coming out until uh, May twenty twenty four. I was surprised we got to see. Fairly well-developed uh, visual effects for it. Uh, you know, not too much of the of the movie. What did you think, Romeo, of what you saw? It was so cute. It was so <laughs> cute. I mean, this big... Um, it was. I don't cute. think I can say much, but yeah, this imaginary friend uh, storytelle right. with this... Uh, yeah, and uh, Ryan Reynolds is, uh, is playing in it. Right, so. Ryan Reynolds is in the film. He's a draw for audiences. Yeah. It's so cute, yeah. so... And a lot of animated, like you know, imaginary friends. And my favorite was uh, Vince Vaughn plays a, 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 an imaginary friend who's a glass of ice water. <laughs> I don't know why that's they've, so funny. They've been so creative for the imaginary friends and that's mm-hmm. that's that's yeah. why I'm eager to, to discover, definitely. Yeah, I think that's going to be a movie that I think a lot of parents can go with their kids and probably have as good of a time mm-hmm. watching it. I'm looking forward to seeing that, as we mentioned, in May 2024. Uh, but coming up a lot sooner... Uh, the house that Tom Cruise built, at least as of late, mm-hmm. uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. The release date for this movie being pushed up two days. It was announced at CinemaCon at this presentation. was supposed to come out Friday, July 14th. It's now going to come out Wednesday, July 12th. That's the confidence that they have for this title. They want that five-day weekend uh, take. And we got to see not only a trailer for the movie, we also got to see a 20-minute extended sequence. It's not the opening of the film. Tom Cruise wasn't here, but uh, Chris Aronson that introduced the footage said, Tom wants to let you know, this isn't the opening to the film. But it was a car chase. It looked good. I think the movie Tom Cruise fights AI. Is that what it's about? Is AI the bad guy? I don't think it matters. We're going to see Tom Cruise running and fighting and jumping off tall things. But I do think he like, I think he's like, yeah, he's fighting automation and like chat GPT. That seems to be the bad guy. We'll see. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just like a rich guy in a suit. Rich guy in a suit is always like the go-to bad guy. Also bad. I mean, I I think we said it yesterday or after the, uh, after the, the Disney uh, presentation that uh, a, a nice long uh, segment of a car chase is is never a bad thing to present at CinemaCon. Strangely, like both the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One guys, the the punctuation or lack thereof in this franchise is always bugged the crap out of me. <laughs> well, when you um, when you have to like spell it out uh, in your headlines and in your articles, it gets annoying. But this one uh, and and Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny both had clips of their like superstar leading men doing car chases in little tiny comically small cars mm-hmm. rattling around in international city. It Always was, works. It was a weird, like, this is, this is quite similar. Um, but no, it, it looked, it looked fun. It looked like a mission impossible movie, it, you know, international locations, uh, you know, attractive people, Tom Cruise running around. It's all we need. Spy magic, you know? And, uh, Tom Cruise is probably coming into this movie at the height of his box office power. Romeo, uh, what have the last two Tom Cruise movies, uh, done at the box office? I don't know. Top Gun, maybe. I, feel, I have a feeling <laughs> we talked about that one so much, but, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's put some figure on that one. So yeah, Top Gun did one billion four hundred and eighty three million dollars um which worldwide is worldwide and that's yeah. top gun maverick the sequel that top came gun, out yeah, yeah. just recently yeah definitely with a 50 50 percent split between the u.s and international 50 50 mm-hmm. i mean that's so, so hard to see that's fantastic and yeah. actually that this is actually nothing comparable to the previous uh, mission impossible because when you when you look at the domestic box office for top gun maverick 
it's quite similar to the worldwide box office from Rogue Nation or Fallout. So right. Fallout in 2018 did 782 million worldwide. Worldwide. So Top Gun Maverick was the first billion dollar Tom Cruise movie worldwide. Uh, and like you mentioned, pretty much doubling uh, the worldwide grosses of his prior films. I wonder if it's going to have a trickle down effect on, on this film. You know, maybe people who went back to the movies for the first Probably. time since the pandemic to see Top Gun Maverick remember how much they liked Tom Cruise. It can movies. only help. Well, the, the, I think the best movie in the Mission Impossible franchise was the last one. That helicopter chase scene in the third act between, you know, uh, Henry Cable Superman and ageless Tom Cruise. That was great. There are enough helicopter chases in movies. I'm going to say that right now and put it on the record. Put more helicopter chases in your movies, guys. I'll vote for it. I'm into it. Uh, but hardly enough, that even wasn't the most exciting part of the Paramount presentation because one of the big questions we had coming into this year's event was if we would get to see anything from Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. That's an Apple original film's release that Paramount will be distributing theatrically. Martin Scorsese, in person, showing up to present footage of uh, this movie. We got to see a teaser trailer. And and if anyone's wondering, yes, we do have a photo of him meeting Rihanna backstage. That's wonderful. Yeah, but it looked good. I mean, this is a film that kind of like... Infamously, we've had one image, one teaser image for like 16 months. It's like there's actual footage from this film and, and it looks great. I mean, it's part of the tradition of, of Scorsese adapting these these very, um, you know, seminal kind of iconic his moments in history, moments in American history, right. um, as with, you know, Gangs of New York, as... Uh, I was going to mention that. I think there's yeah. the closest, like, Scorsese comparison is Gangs of New that's York. The one, that's the one that... And I love Gangs of New York. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait. For me, this was the highlight of CinemaCon in terms of footage that we saw. But again, like, I'm a huge Scorsese fan. Of course I am. And of course I was going to like this. So take that with whatever grain of salt you want to. But it looks great. At least for people that like Scorsese, it looks great. That's not it, though, because Scorsese hung around for lunch for a previously advertised uh, luncheon interview. We didn't know who would get to moderate. I think everybody emailed uh, Mitch Newhouser mm -hmm. that puts on CinemaCon saying, hey, if you need a moderator, no one was I'm around. No, no, I was really wondering, man, who are they going to get to ask them questions? And uh, Chad Kenner, who is uh, helping us produce the show here in Las Vegas, he was assigned to cover this. Uh, how surprised were you when uh, the moderator for this interview with Scorsese stepped up to the stage? Uh, very surprised. So Leo was in the house. Leonardo DiCaprio came up asking questions to Scorsese. Um, before that, Jackie Brenneman of the Cinema, Cinema Foundation awarded Scorsese with the Legend of Cinema Award, which she revealed will be an annual award at CinemaCon and will be actually named after Scorsese moving forward. Yeah, really interesting conversation. Uh, I feel like you can ask Martin Scorsese about cinema and he will just go on and you don't need to ask any other questions so I talk think... about talk about polish films for the 50s martin scorsese and i would listen to that answer yeah it was great <laughs> and that's exactly what he talked about <laughs> for most of an hour-long lunch yeah i love it yeah well chad you, you said that um i mean scorsese talking about film i mean it, it's going to be a love fest. I mean, this is this is a guy who not only is, is one of the greatest living filmmakers, but also who has really thrown his weight behind international film, historical film, just oh, film preservation, restoration, restoration. yeah, release, yeah. re-releasing things theatrically. And here he uh, he really kind of went to bat 
uh, for the for the smaller films chat. Can you tell us kind of what he said about that in the context of the exhibition space? Yeah, so in his remarks accepting the award, he asked exhibitors to think about screening more indie films in the comfort and experience that only a theater can provide. He talked about film as incorporating all of the art forms and how someone in that audience that is maybe a teenager or in their 20s now could be the next great filmmaker that brings a huge blockbuster to the screen like Top Gun Maverick. So he was just asking that, um, that exhibitors think about bringing in those smaller films and what that could lead to in the future. Which I think is really important because at, at a lot of these studio presentations, the studio executives have been emphasizing we have been listening to you, we have heard you, we are giving you films across a variety of different genres and budget levels. We are giving you not only volume, but also variety. And I, I think, you know, and a key part of that too is, is as Scorsese is saying, you know, exhibitors also have a responsibility to throw their weight behind those films, to program yeah. them, to market them, and and not necessarily the, you know, Wes Anderson, Asteroid City, like the big you know, the, the, the larger side of, of, the, of the independent world, but like the bottle rockets, like the, yeah. the first Wes Anderson film, like the films from well, the directors. equivalent to the first yeah. Wes Anderson film. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And yeah, I think a good example is uh, what we've seen with Scorsese's support of filmmakers like the Safdie brothers, for example, right? Mm -hmm. That were really exciting voices in feature filmmaking and had the support of someone like Scorsese to finally make a movie like uncut gems that he served as uh, one of the producers for. That's a great example of finding, you know, young filmmakers and being able to help them make bigger and bigger movies. But we still need screens to get that first, second, maybe third feature out there and uh, and, and get these people on, on folks' radar. So uh, I, I think nice remarks from Scorsese in those uh, two, maybe three questions that uh, DiCaprio was able to get out before the 37-minute long responses uh, came in. Are you going to tell Martin Scorsese to, to, to cut it short? If Leo can't, uh, I much less will <laughs> try ever at all. Uh, plus, he's a, a, you know, a, a lovely person to, to hear from when it comes to talking about film and film history. And there's one more point with Scorsese. He he really did make a, a big deal about how um, grateful he was and happy he was that Killers of the Flower Moon will be seen on a big screen in theaters. Um, so that was really nice to hear. Yeah, I'm hyped for this one. Um, like you said, he did a 10 movie with um, Robert De Niro, yeah. six movie with Leo. And this one, this is the first time uh, they are both together. Mm. Like screen. all three of them, Scorsese, yeah. De Niro, DiCaprio. That's one of the things that earlier in uh, DiCaprio's collaborations with uh, Scorsese, people were saying, right? Uh, DiCaprio might be the next uh, De Niro for Scorsese. And I think it's, it's, it's shaping up to be that way. And it's a nice sort of connection uh, that we have here. So that was lunchtime here at CinemaCon. After that, we had one final studio presentation to finish up uh, the entire weeks of events. That's Lionsgate uh, with David Spitz, the president of Worldwide Theatrical Distribution, taking the stage and talking about the 14 wide releases that Lionsgate is going to be bringing 
to movie theaters this year. We've seen some of them already. John Wick Chapter 4 being a massive, massive hit. Uh, some of the other titles that we're going to go over, we actually saw as part of a more robust Lionsgate presentation last year. So if anything, if you want to listen to more detail on maybe half of the movies we're going to talk about, go to last year's CinemaCon podcast series yeah. that we did because we got to see a lot more of these movies in last year's Lionsgate presentation. Yeah. This year, it was pretty uh, pretty easy breezy just kind of going through uh, release dates of, of uh, films coming out so far this year, uh, spending the bulk of, of the, the, the time allotted to them by CinemaCon uh, for the theatrical screening of, of Joyride. We did also get a panel discussion before that, kind of going into, uh, you know, how nice it was to have, like, a female-fronted R-rated comedy eating big screens. That's something that we were talking about a few days ago, like, when is the last time we really had like an R-rated comedy hit big? So, um, and that's, that's Joyride, right? Yeah. It, which screen in its entirety here at CinemaCon right after that presentation? Joyride, we that's coming up. That release date, July seventh. It's soon, yeah. Yeah, and that had a South by Southwest screening that apparently drew great notices. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of excitement for that title uh, to, to come out later this summer. Uh, another round of uh, movies and release dates that we're going to go over that were part of this presentation. As we said, we didn't get to see much. So if you want to hear more about some of these titles, go back to our uh, last year's CinemaCon podcast series to hear more detail. We had About My Father from comedian Steve Sebastian, Sebastian Maniscalco, and uh, featuring Robert De Niro, that is going to be coming out on May 26th. We've got uh, The Blackening, a uh, comedy on June 16th. Uh, White Bird, which is part of the Wonder Universe. Can we call a that a cinematic story? universe? If you guys remember Jacob Tremblay, like the little boy from the Room movie that oh, yeah, came yeah. out, like, what was yeah, it, 2015? Yeah. 2016, around there. Well, he uh, he was in that movie, Wonder. About being nice to people who are, who are different oh, yeah. and, and developing empathy. And that must have come out, what, 2018, 2019? Yeah. Well, and then they made a, a prequel kind of shared universe uh, film with Helen Mirren called White Bird. Lionsgate put up, spent a lot of time on it at last, last year's year, presentation yeah. when it had a date, and then they yanked it from the calendar, and then recently they put it back. So I don't know if they just were trying to find the right date, the right circumstances. I'm... Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, at least it's back on the calendar, and I'm glad that it's back on the calendar. That's coming up on August 25th. Uh, Then a movie that I'm really excited uh, to connect with in uh, September of this year, Expendables 4, uh, with a couple new cast members. Uh, I won't go into it in too much detail, but that is going to be coming out on September. And Romeo, uh, Expendables 4, of course, there's Obviously, three movies leading into this. I know the third one didn't do too well. Also, that movie was, I think, pirated online uh, shortly before its release date. That influenced. How much it influenced, who knows, but it does influence. Uh, What's the box office momentum that the Expendables franchise has coming into this December. Well, when you look at the December, first one, I'm sorry, September. September I, need get, I need to get yeah. my months right. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you look at the first one was released in 2010, they did $274 million worldwide with a 62% market share outside of the US. And then it, and then it, it came bit by bit a little bit more outside of the US with the second one that did $325 million with a 73% outside of the US. Mm-hmm. And for the third one, like you said, 
um, because of piracy, uh, piracy issue, did $215 million and 82% outside of the US. 82% international. Yeah. Solid. And, yeah. and this one does have, I mean, Eco Waste and Tony Jaw are, are both coming into the franchise, solid international action stars. I mean, uh, two of my favorite international stars. Mm -hmm. Waste, come on. Waste, I think, is, is up there in oh. terms of like martial arts action stars. Got I love you. watching Got him yeah. in, in, in anything he's in. A, a very different film. Uh, next on the release date from uh, release calendar from Lionsgate on October 13th, Ordinary Angels with Hilary Swank. That is a faith-based title. Uh, it's a genre that Lionsgate has had a lot of success with recently. Earlier this year, uh, The Jesus Revolution uh, did perform really, really solidly for them. And they have some uh, some partnerships uh, with various, you know, faith-based filmmakers that have really, uh, have really, it's really become a, a vital part of their brand. And that's another movie that I wish Eko Uwes uh, has a bit part in. Yeah. I'm not sure he's going to, but if he if he did, I think that would uh, help yeah. me get to theaters. I think he's more likely, at least genre-wise, uh, the next film after that coming up from Lionsgate is a new film in the Saw franchise, uh, Saw X. Uh, we don't know anything about it. I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be a light and fluffy, fun rom-com. And if he goes is in it, maybe he does some cool kicks. I don't know. Yeah. I think there needs to be more martial arts in the Saw movies. That's my okay. you know, personal <laughs> opinion. But sure, like horror, death traps, if you're into that thing, why not? Now, I, I'm not sure how these Saw movies have performed at the box office recently. Obviously, we're already at number 10. But there's been also a couple of spinoffs, Romeo. Yeah, the latest one was uh, Spiral in 2021. Chris but I Rock think is in it? Like Chris Rock Chris is in Rock, it. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there is the movie during the third wave or second wave of COVID or something like that. So that's a pandemic movie. What did you say? 2021. 2021. 2021. So in the pandemic era, uh, Spiral, this, this spinoff of the... Uh, Saw franchise comes yeah. out. How much money did you say it made? Forty-one million dollars worldwide. Forty-one million are yeah. worldwide. So Forty-one million worldwide during the pandemic. During the pandemic. I would call this. It's like the same rules as the Champions League. Yeah. Like during the pandemic, <laughs> away goals count double. So just double that forty-one. <laughs> it's going to be eighty-two, right? So okay, fine. You know, we'll, no, we'll go with uh, that. actually, you're kind of right because the, the the one before was in 2017. Jigsaw. Uh, they did uh, 102 million dollars worldwide with a 63% market share outside of the US. And the one before was in 2010 with So3D. Uh, I mean, the one before, the one that could be comparable, should I say, and they did $136 million. So it could be a $100 million franchise, but I mean, a $100 million movie for yeah. this franchise. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. I mean, the, this franchise has been yeah. there for, for years. They tried a bit everything, spin-off, stuff like that, so. Martial arts, I'm telling you guys. Lionsgate, <laughs> David, give me a call when you can. Yeah. Uh, just bring in that Expendables cast, have crossover. a crossover, why not? Well, It'd be great. In terms of Lions, they, they, before getting to, to Joyride, the, the upcoming film that they probably spent the most amount of time on is, is one that I'm most curious about. Uh, the Hunger Games uh, spinoff, the Hunger Games, the Battle of Songs and Snakes. They're keeping that title. I don't know. <laughs> but no, it's a, it's a, it's a We're going to have to write that title so many times comes oh November. God. November. I'm already dreading. Between that Mission Impossible title and this Hunger Games thing, it's going to, like, my autocomplete is going to be great. Like, T-H-G-T-B-S. Oh, like, come on. Come but... on, man. Does it even fit in the poster? Oh, oh it's like know. three lines of text. Well, we, oh, we did just get on, the guys. first poster. We got just, a poster. Just put, we got put numbers in it. Just put a number after the title. You're good. 
Oh, uh, we're, we got, we got, we're at the point of the CinemaCon, if you can't tell, where it's like little punch drunk, loopy yeah. kind of situation. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to feel about this, this, this uh, prequel to the Hunger Games. I mean, I don't. It's the uh, Fantastic Beast uh, Harry Potter uh, from oh, Hunger Games. Don't, don't cut, no, don't bring that into the well, universe. No, I mean, Do not wish Fantastic Beast numbers <laughs> on a prequel franchise. Of, of, like, in the distributor that we need to perform well, and by and large, I mean, listen, the bets that Lionsgate has taken have worked as of late. They have. It really has. Yeah. But they, they, uh, they this is a huge question mark. We said that in our preview episode. Yeah. It's not... That after watching this teaser trailer, all the doubts that we it shared last like week are quelled. It looks, it looks, it doesn't really look particularly fresh to me. I don't know. Adam Fogelson, the vice chair of the motion picture group at Lionsgate, um, cited two films as a reference point for this one as like, this is just a, a newer angle on a pre-existing franchise rather than like a direct prequel. Um, he cited Wicked, uh, which, good, that, fair. That's, that's, that ooh, awesome. that's aiming high. And he cited uh, the Star Wars Episode One, which is aiming no, really low. No, like, why would you compare your film to don't that? Don't bring that up. Yeah, no, um, that's not a good comp. Uh, both are tough comps. But, yeah, but we'll see how it goes. You know, it, yeah. it, we don't know how this is going to play out because the Hunger Games movies, by and large, were a massive, massive franchise for Lionsgate. Did fantastic business for them. They went a little bit deeper on the young adult franchise with a planned trilogy on a series of books called... Divergent, I believe. That was one was. of the ones oh, yeah. that um, they split the last movie into two movies. And it was the one where, like, this, it, it was finally revealed, no, don't do this, because they didn't even finish the thing. They didn't finish the franchise. No. That was just, they walked away from it, unfortunately. No. And I think it's tricky. Now, to, to be perfectly fair in this situation, because we, we have weird comps here in that, yes, we could compare this to movies that performed exceptionally well, like the original Hunger Games. I think this is a little, that's a little unfair. Jennifer Lawrence isn't in this franchise. Yeah. It's not a continuation. I don't think that would be a natural comp. At the same time, I'm not sure that the Divergent movies that were kind of like left by the wayside yeah. are a fair comp either. I think it's in the other way. This is going to be somewhere in the middle. Let's see how it plays out. Know. But it could like, go It could go either way here. I feel like so much of the success of, of The Hunger Games or, or so much of why it caught on was because it was Jennifer Lawrence. I mean, she was an Oscar winner she, by this point. She was like the hot new thing. This time around, the the female star of that franchise is, is Rachel Zegler, who is like up and coming. She's great. West Side Story, the Shazam right. sequel, yeah. but not kind of not a household name the way that Jennifer Lawrence was at the same point when she was launching her take on the franchise so yeah i don't know i hope it's good i think we all do and if it isn't i hope it performs at least and that movie is coming out on november 17th right before that thanksgiving frame uh it's great to have Lionsgate back you know all in all you know the movies that we're hopeful about are the ones that we're a little bit scared of uh, of how they might turn out either way we needed uh, a studio like Lionsgate to come back to have this commitment with 14 theatrical titles this year they haven't had that output not in years not since the pandemic started and you already saw an example of how they can perform with a title like john wick chapter four go back to the first john wick no one expected this to be what it is today this franchise and what lionsgate can get right is if one of these movies performs well they can find a way to keep audiences engaged moving forward. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of faith in this studio. I have a lot of, you know, a lot of good feelings to see uh, a player like this come in and participate 
and actually invest in marketing these uh, theatrical events. I, I, I'm thrilled that they were here and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, most of this slate when it comes out. Well, I guess that's it, guys. It's like That's that's yeah. CinemaCon? That's 2023? We're finished? Is it a wrap? That's a wrap, oh. guys. Well, you know, if you're listening to us, you still have to stick around because you should. You've got a panel session from International Day here at CinemaCon 2023. It was held on Monday. Our CEO, Julien Marcel, moderates a conversation with Disney's head of theatrical distribution, Tony Chambers, and the CEO of Event Cinemas in Australia, a multinational circuit that's Jane Hastings. The three of them go into a fascinating conversation on the current state of the exhibition business. Don't miss that. That is coming up after the break. On behalf of everyone here at Box Office Pro, a big thank you to you for listening to us and a huge thank you to our sponsors this week, Ice Theaters and Park VIP. Thank you so much for your support. We will see you again right, uh, I guess, next week where we're done with the daily episodes. We'll see you again with our usual episode series uh, next Thursday when we're back on. And uh, with no further ado, Please enjoy, after this break, a panel conversation from CinemaCon 2023 between Julian Marcel, Tony Chambers, and Jane Hastings. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our annual uh, executive triangle. That's what it's going to be. Yeah, this triangle, yes. And uh, I couldn't uh, be uh, better surrounded than with uh, Jane Hastings from uh, EVT. She's the managing director and CEO of uh, EVT from uh, Australia or New Zealand? Australia, right? Originally New Zealand. Exactly. And Tony Chambers, head of theatrical distribution at the Walt Disney Company, with a lot of experience uh, overseas. Um, maybe just to, to get started with a, a discussion that has a pretty broad uh, topic because we are supposed to cover, I quote, many issues and more. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to cover many issues and more. But maybe I'll start with you, uh, Tony, with the international markets, uh, just to recognize that the situation across the globe is a mixed bag of very different situations. So why don't we try to just uh, separate it in pieces, cut it in pieces, and look at the very specific situation, starting with maybe some very specific markets that are important that have been affected by the geopolitical turmoil over the past few months. Okay, uh, good morning everyone. Um, great to be back in Vegas. Um, I'm going to just, the next two or three minutes, be recapping quite a bit of what Mark Vian said earlier this morning. But going into COVID, I think all markets were in a very different position and now coming out, it's the same. So geopolitical, I think as a studio, we're dealing with the fact that we no longer, as, at least from an MPA perspective, uh, deal with Russia. Uh, we have the situation in Ukraine, but that market remarkably is still resilient. The second biggest movie of all time was Avatar The Way of Water, despite lack of electricity, despite um, missiles being um, and the, the territory being um, attacked. It's, it's very, very resilient. So you've got geopolitics on one side, You've got a bucket, and I apologize, I'll be generalizing in the next few minutes. You've got a bucket of markets pre-pandemic and post-pandemic that are under-screened, young population, and I'd say Indonesia, Vietnam, where you know there's going to be growth. India is also very, very encouraging. Um, and, and then you've got markets rebounding differently coming out of COVID, starting with the positive. Um, Germany, um, I, I think uh, Phil Clapp, 
gave me a statistic last week. I don't know if it's true. If it's not, it's a good statistic, so I'm going to use it. Uh, he said um, that half of the audience that saw Avatar The Way of the Water, which is 10 million admissions, that was their first time back in the theatre since COVID. And we'll be talking uh, shortly about frequency and, and what we need to do to get those people back in. But Germany, they are now tracking above where they were in 18 and 19. You then have markets like Latin America, also France, which are about 10 to 15% below pre-pandemic levels, which is great. Super Mario in, in Mexico is a phenomenal result. And then you've got two, uh, two other buckets of markets, I'd call it. One where the overall market is doing very well, but Hollywood titles are not necessarily cutting through. Consumer appetite has changed. That's Japan and China. Um, the earlier panel was talking about Suzume and the first slam dunk movie. Yet Hollywood movies, unless it's Avatar, not cutting through. And then you've got a number of other markets that are slower to rebound. I'd, I'd quote Korea, where I'm not saying that the audience has fallen out of love with cinema, but it's not where it was pre-pandemic. And then Italy, which is much slower to come out of the pandemic. They had mask mandates for a lot longer than everybody else. But uh, encouragingly, last week, the government announced a 20 million euro package for summer. I think Deadline just reported on it just before uh, this panel. So you just hope that initiatives like that will get people back into theatres. But uh, to summarise, as we were going into the pandemic, lots of markets were in different places, and that's going to be the, the case as we come out. And you have a specific perspective on these different markets with uh, operations in Australia and New Zealand and in Germany. Uh, what's your perspective on the differences in, uh, in trends in the regions where you operate? Yeah, it's an interesting mix of markets and many people ask us how we got there. Uh, long story. Uh, but what we're seeing is it's all related to the number and quality of film releases. So particularly in Germany, we've got a really strong local content lineup. And that's supporting, I think Germany's actually tracking box office-wise relatively flat, about 5% down, uh, whereas Australia and New Zealand are 20% behind. So Australia and New Zealand don't have the luxury or are still building on the level of international content which is available to support that recovery because customers come to cinemas when there's something to see. So the factor of frequency and the factor of different recovery levels is all down to the number and quality of films that are being played on the screens for people to come and see. Because indeed there has been a lot of comments following the, the State of the Industry uh, report by the, the Global Cinema Foundation on the fact that the number of titles would be the, the, the key uh, answer to the, the current uh, lack of audience because on the same uh, number of, on the per title basis, we see that the wide releases perform, sl perform slightly better than they did in the past. But you think that might not be the only answer, Tony? Uh, look, there's, there's multiple things at play here. Um, and some of them, that some of the factors that were in place pre-COVID still apply now. I do think the factor of any movie, do I need to see it now? And do I need to see it on the big screen? That was the mantra pre pandemic and it's even more the case now because there's the competition for people's time it's now more than ever and so we 
exhibition and distribution need to give the audience a reason to get out of their home to go to the theatre. And not just once, and I know we may have a different view on frequency, is that it's not just once, we need to get them again and again and again. One of the statistics, we'll, we'll take Germany for example, 81 million population, mm -hmm. um, 10 million people saw Avatar, highest grossing movie of all time, that 71 million people did not see that movie. Same in France, 10 million saw Avatar, what is it, 53 didn't see the movie. So we've got a, an audience, we have to get them in again and again and again. That comes down to the experience, giving them a good experience and giving them a reason to go back again. And it's not just the movie itself, it's everything from the minute they buy their ticket to the minute they leave the, the foyer and get into their car. Yeah, I agree, Tony. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that it's a combination of films that are targeted to that um, audience. I think we've lot, heard a little bit about the seniors' audience, which has been interesting this morning. And the seniors' audience are coming when there is a film that is targeted to them. We just haven't had them. They're not in our markets, our research, and we've got 80% of our cinema guys are in our, in our movie cinema database, and we track what people are wanting to see, um, what they're prepared to pay, all of these things, like many others in the room, and our seniors audience simply haven't had the films to see. And so that's why they're not coming. They are actually trying other films that you wouldn't expect them to try, because they, they're a frequent audience. They like to come on a regular basis. But the, there's not been a change in behaviour. Uh, from our research, it's not a COVID hangover. It's the fact that there haven't been films for them to see. And we talk to them regularly, we reach them directly, we can understand that. So we've got to be careful with how sometimes we're presenting information in the market around frequency or a particular genre not being there because nine times out of ten, it's because we haven't actually had a film slate which reflects the prior year's film slate so it attracts a slightly different mix of customers. Yeah. And, and look, uh, I'm, most people in the room know this already but there's been a movie that has worked for every single genre last year and over the last two or three months. With Avatar, um, that very first week, we opened to $434 million at the box office. Some of the trades were kind of going, oh, that's slightly disappointing. And we said, uh-uh, we knew we hit every single audience, every single demographic, every single location. We knew we had a clear run. We knew the audience was there and they would come at the right time. And look, 2.3 $2 billion proves reason it. proves it. So the, the audience is there. They just, as I said, they need to be enticed out. And for example, that st statistic, that's why I said it from Phil Clapp. 50% of the audience, first time back, that meant there were 5 million others who had been back. It's about getting them out and giving them a reason to come to the theatre. And it's not just the movie, it's the entire experience. I, I think another example of that is Super Mario. Yeah. Now... Our family audiences have been starved for something to bring their families to come and see. I mean, it's a good film and it's delivered and it's done many things, but they haven't had a lot to come and see. So we're all experiencing um, families in the school holidays seeing it twice because they literally aren't a broad range of options and they want to come to the films because every parent loves to take their kids and have two hours of silence and the kids enjoy a film. It's a social engagement 
and and we haven't been able to deliver that for them. So I'm um, you know I'm really optimistic with the rebuilding slate that we're actually going to see some record breaking numbers. Um, we just obviously need to be able to offer them something to come and see. Yeah, and, and offer an end-to-end -end experience that starts from the moment you even uh, have the idea of visiting a movie, uh, a movie theater to the moment you, uh, you are re-engaged following this visit. And I think the, the toolbox that we all uh, have uh, in terms of online ticketing, in terms of loyalty programs, are an essential piece of, uh, of this relationship. Look, essential, and everyone in this room is doing a phenomenal job of that. I mean, I keep hearing about, we heard it this morning with um, RJ and, and the size of his database, and I think um, Cineplex, I think they've quoted to have 30% of the population in their databases, and, you know, and, and we are similar. We can, you know, exhibitors are really close to their customer now. They always have been, but in a way whereby we know if the films that are on the horizon are appealing to audiences well before they hit the screens. We know if the marketing is working and we share that information to say, you know, you're actually ranking number five for this key target audience, we need more awareness. We know what their preference for premium, we know what they're prepared to pay. And most importantly, we've been talking a lot about experience, we track net promoter scores, we track customer satisfaction. We know what they like and what they don't like and where to improve. And I think many exhibitors internationally have done a lot to improve that experience. But that cinema database is gold. You know, it's... Um, it's to be able to find the exact audience and broader audience and invite them in is quite powerful. Probably what's missing uh, to really leverage the gold from that audience is more content around the films releasing to really excite that audience directly uh, before it opens in cinemas. And look, um, this is my personal opinion. As a consumer, as a moviegoer, I think pre-pandemic, going to the movies, going to the theatres was a habit, and you always gave movies the benefit of the doubt. Coming through pan the pandemic, coming out the other side, there are, there are folks, and I'll put myself included, as, an, as, an, as a consumer and a moviegoer, that because of the cannibalization of time, the other things that there are potentially to do, there are so many other reasons not to go to the theatre now. We, as studios and exhibition, need to give the audience a reason to go. Now, you can have, you can talk about the messaging in theatres only, in cinemas only, exclusively in, in, in theatres, that's fine. We've been doing that for the last, say, 15, 16, 17 months. But I think what we've got to do is drive urgency to see it now, and also we've, we've got to eventize, to, to kind of scream theatricality. We had the other conversation on the other panel. Having premium large formats screams to the consumer theatricality. That is something that you can't get at home. So, so it's, it's about driving that urgency, and look, I'll, I'll, I'll say my 16-year-old daughter, she already knows she's going to Barbie. It's, it's not on my list. I apologize to the Warner contingent. But she already knows three months in advance she's going to Barbie. Irrespective of whether the, the movie's good, bad, or indifferent, she knows I'm going to Barbie. And that, is, and that is what we all need to do in terms of putting a stake in the ground. You can't, unfortunately, do it with every movie. But at least it's on the horizon 
and everyone knows that's theatrical, that's July, I'm going. And I think that's what we need to do. Drive urgency, give people a reason to go sooner, not give them a reason to delay, and then just make sure that it screams theatricality. I, I do think, I mean, it's an interesting point you raise about competition for time. I think the key thing around that, though, is as exhibitors, we've always had immense amount of competition because the decision-making, and this is well-researched for a customer going to the movies, is are we staying at home tonight? Okay, so what are we going to do? We're going to do nothing. Okay, if you're going to do nothing, we might as well watch something or listen to something or read something. But actually, in, a, in the exhi exhibition world, it's shall we go out? Yeah, let's go out. So are we going to dinner? Are we going to a movie? Are we going to, what are we going to do when we go out? So our competitive set is the experiences out of home. It always has been, and they're always getting better, and they always will be, as are cinemas. So I think it's really important that we're not fighting for time over, do I stay at home and watch this on my phone, or do I go out? We're actually, it's, it's, it's two completely different sets of decisions. And, and it's, look, interesting from the data, it's those exhibitors, rightly or wrongly, who are offering a wider experience, food and beverage, as well as, as the movie experience, they're the ones that we're seeing are increasing the market share between pre-pandemic and post. So event, you've got the Everyman's here in the US, you've got the IPICs, you've got the Alamos, you've got Cinepolis as well. They are clearly seeing, and, and consumers are responding, that here I've got three hours, the babysitter's at home, I've got my three hours, I get a wonderful experience, lovely food and beverage in a lovely environment, and a terrific film. Yeah. And, and look, the numbers speak for themselves. You just have to look at the, the market shares of, the, of those exhibitors. And look, I'm aware that you can't nationally turn an 18plex into a lovely boutique uh, gold-class auditorium, but those exhibitors that have had the ability over the pandemic or during the pandemic to adapt and change, and I know that not everyone has had the money or the ability to do it, they're the ones I personally think are set up well for the future. Yeah, and I think that's an important element, which is that there are several models for diversification in terms of experience. I'm not necessarily talking about diversification of content. You mentioned some of the very successful uh, boutique uh, type of uh, chains, but you also have uh, large multiplexes that uh, find themselves with available space because of the evolution of practices, because of the digitalization of uh, box office. Uh, what's your view, Jane, on these different models and which ones have you embraced more than the others? Uh, look, well, we've, we've got a philosophy that we want a customer to arrive at a cinema and behind every single door be able to discover a new experience. And that's not just what we put on screen. So, you know, we've embarked on a journey of creating that. And I've, you know, I'm delighted to hear about others internationally who have also done a similar thing. So it's about the seat and it is about the food and beverage. So beyond the um, PLFs and they're great, the IMAXs and the 40Xs and the Screen Xs, and we're all dabbling with those and they're a great part of the mix. What I'm probably more delighted to see in the industry is the level of innovation outside of that. So in a particular cinema, you might have three different seating formats. You can have sofa cinemas. You can have children's cinemas with beanbags at the front and three different seating types and playgrounds. We've embarked on all of those. Every single one of them is giving us substantial double-digit returns. And we've been asked a lot, you know, will, will customers pay for that? 
and the researchers out there, our customers, and particularly the Gen X audience, they're prepared to pay for experiences. They're not so prepared to pay for products. They're deciding not to buy cars and homes, but they've grown up in a branded world and they want the best now. So every time we're going into a location, we're planning different experiences behind every door. We're creating new experiences of our own. We're looking out there at other exhibitors around the world and going, that looks great. How do we adapt that? Um, and you just need to be brave to create different seating types. We're not even taking traditional seats from cinema seats in some cinemas. And customers love it. And they are paying more. Paying more, we're getting $50 for a seat at the front of a standard cinema. And someone else in the cinema will be paying $10 at the back for a different type of seat. So there's a price point for everyone, there's an experience for everyone, and it makes it more exciting. And that's, that's, that's our part of the equation, um, to make sure that we've got a successful industry going forward. And I am super excited because I think we're at the tip of the iceberg with this. And everybody is starting to create more, and it's enhancing the experience, and our customer satisfaction scores have never been higher. So it works. And I think it's very fitting for a seminar like this morning uh, about international to highlight the diversity of ideas and concepts that come from different places uh, throughout the world. When we talk about PLFs, of course, there are the, the Dolby's and IMAX that are super successful, but you also have the, the 4DX and ScreenX coming from Asia. You have the ICE theaters coming from Europe. And I think that speaks to the point that we need to adapt also the experiences to each of the different markets. And in the US market, I see more and more movie theaters uh, bringing back the bowling, the bowling alleys uh, to the movie theaters. And and that's a market that is huge in the US, that's not necessarily so huge in other geographies. So each market have to come up with their own ideas. It, and it is. It's different. And it's not even in market. It can be in location in terms of the demographic you've got going to that cinema. You know, we've embarked quite intently on creating play, um, play zones with that type of concept. And they're hugely profitable. Because in the downtime waiting for a film, they're spending money in underutilised real estate that either if you own the property, it's a little different, but if you're, if you're leasing these properties, we've got to make money out of every per square metre that we have, and it is proving successful. And there can also be ways for, for the content owners and for the studios to also engage in many ways with the, with the audiences. Yeah, so I'm, I'll, I'll try and connect two themes, one right at the very beginning and, and, and this one. Um, look, we, we, we spoke about having to have a variety or a wide slate. And, and I'm not an exhibitor, but I do look at the financial statements. And even pre-pandemic, it's the last 10, 20% of admissions through the door, that's what drives profitability. And to get those numbers, you need a wide range of, of slate, all different budgets. It's the smaller, medium-sized movies we saw in the, the previous um, um, presentation that some of them, that that's, they're the ones that are missing. We as an industry need to support those movies in order to make sure that we're back up in terms of volume, but also we give the audience a diverse range of, of choice. What we're seeing, and I'll, I'll use Banshees of Inishirin, it's a long way to get to this point about Banshees of Inishirin, but it's $38 million international box office on Banshees, $10 million domestically. Yep, I would, um, I would say the international audience is possibly more open to Banshees. 
that's one. But I also do think it's the offering that you get internationally is a better proposition for that type of movie versus here in the US. So yet yeah, you have the Alamos, yes, you have the Star, yes, you have the Galaxy, yet yeah, you have the IPIC, but I think there is a, there's, there's something missing in terms of the offering here in the US versus what you do have internationally. Because internationally in Australia, in Europe, there is a kind of a curated experience for movies like that. Um, um, it, was, it was touched on in the, in the previous panel, is that, for example, Alamo, have that curated experience where something like a banshee, something like an everywhere, everywhere, all at once uh, can thrive, but it's not necessarily the case. And I think for this business as a whole to thrive, it's those medium and smaller movies we need to make sure work. So yet you eventize uh, Indiana Jones, yep, you eventize Guardians of the Galaxy or Barbie, but it's those medium and smaller titles. If, if we don't, producers will not be able to get get them made. The financing will not work, and that's what we need to make sure work. So. Yeah, and, and indeed, it's, there has been a lot of conversation on the specific challenges on these other movies. Uh, the comedies that have uh, taken a long time to, to get back to, to the audiences, the, the great success of genre movies, uh, horror titles, etc., to bring the diversity. And it's interesting that uh, the, the 2023 version of the Walt Disney Company is really also this mix of, uh, of various titles from the big hits to also ones that have been, some that have been more challenging, like the uh, Empire of Light or others that have had different successes in different markets. And do you see specific regions in the world beyond just this, uh, this format that explain this, uh, this different appetite? Um, I think if it's, even if it's a small, medium or big size movie, it, it's, there's always a challenge of eventizing and getting people out and getting people out straight away. Um, there was a previous panel uh, we're talking about the role the trades have and the roles the critics have. Um, you, and not my movie, but Super Mario Brothers, I think it's 55% fresh on, on Rotten Tomatoes from a critic score and high 90s from an audience score. And so there you've got, and, and look, coming back to the point, as a consumer, if, if I'm being told, or if I'm looking for a reason not to go to the theater, that plays its role as well. So um, the challenges on the smaller medium size is the same as bigger, as the big blockbuster movies, but I think with smaller and medium sized movies, the, the message has to be so tailored, you have to be even more agile. What A24 did with everywhere, everywhere, every, everywhere everything all at once was nothing short of remarkable. To get that movie A made and to get it up and out and to get the accolades it got, phenomenal. And I think, but that's one. And for every one success, there's five, six, sevens that are struggling. And that's where we need together to, to look at ways to be far more agile and far more, um, far more creative in how we target the audiences for those movies. But it also comes down to the offering in place to make sure that a movie like that can thrive. If you don't have the infrastructure, then it's not going to thrive. I, th I think a, a big part of that as an exhibition community is that we are a very powerful director-consumer link. You know, we can find those audiences and we can directly encourage them to come into the cinemas. And I think there still is a gap between understanding the power of the exhibitor connection to customer and those databases and the makers of films and the distribution of those films. 
um, many markets have tried, you know, we can take a film and an exhibitor can do the marketing. We need the publicity support, no doubt, because publicity is really important with the talent, the maker, the story behind the story. That's really important. But we now have the power... <laughs> to find those audiences directly and really support and encourage those films to be made, it just requires new thinking and it requires a new model. And the sooner we arrive at that, <laughs> the more of those films we're going to see. And I think COVID was a really good experiment for exhibition. I can't believe I said COVID and really good in the same sentence because actually there's nothing really good about it. Um, because we didn't have, markets were opening at different times, but the global film market was closed. So each and every one of us has had to go out and work better with the local film community, look at international content, and I think we're the better for it. Because with those films, we've brought them into cinemas, we've found the audiences, we've tested the exhibitor marketing model more than ever before, and it worked. Um, I know in Australia alone, our team are working really closely now with the directors and producers and, and showing that direct-to-customer model. And I think that's going to become increasingly important. And, and, and look, we, we've, we've come from Top Gun last year, Avatar, December. And look, every exhibitor, like studios have financial constraints, exhibition has financial constraints. But I do think exhibition embraced... Top Gun, but they embraced Avatar, the way of water, in terms of what it could do in terms of rebounding the business. Um, and look, not every exhibitor had the ability to spend money to upgrade to an IMAX or Dolby, but every exhibitor stepped up in order to do whatever they could to maximize the experience in each particular location. And then you just see what's happened since on the 3D percentage on screen. You see what the, the PLF or the, the 3D share on, on Super Mario Brothers. Now, different titles, but people are embracing the theatrical experience again. And it's about that momentum, keeping it going and success begets success. That was the mantra in this business many, many, many years ago, and it's now more pertinent than ever. Yeah, it's really, um, I agree, and thank you for Avatar because it was phenomenal. Um, there, I think it's also important to highlight that the, our customers never went away. They never stopped embracing the exhibitor experience. We were just forced to close. So I think it's, again, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk while we've been closed about the future and the viability and everything else. And a lot of that's been led by, dare I use the word, misinformation, you know, poor research in markets where you're tracking admissions and there's no analysis of the type of films released. I think I would be rich for the number of times I've heard families aren't coming back to cinemas. Well, that's compared to prior years. Well, that was because in that year there was 12 films for them to see. And this year there was eight films. And this year there's six films. If you only have six films, they'll come six times. And if you've got 12 films, we'll get them there 12 times. That's not a change in consumer desire. And it's definitely not a change in customer behaviour. We're a content business. We're a film business. If we, we get the product and we find the audience, but all of our audiences are turning up. There's no question 
of that. Right through the pandemic, um, there were global research studies and then you looked at the sample size of 2,000 people. I think they had 20 people in Australia and were writing in, in media about the future of cinema. And we were asking 20,000 people a week about when they would return and what they wanted to come and see. So I think we've got to be careful. There's not been a return of customers. There's been a return of films. The customers have always been there. Yeah, so there is a... I obviously love the optimism behind that, but what I find striking is that we are 20 or 25 minutes into a conversation in 23, and we have not really mentioned streaming. And, and two years ago, it would have been front and center in every conversation, and part of the answer is, yes, we are back as an industry, but we are not exactly back to where we are. I'm not only talking about the level of attendance, but the, the consumer behaviors that has changed and that, uh, that has changed also because of uh, streaming. I can see in some markets, uh, some uh, exhibit, exhibition chains that come back to the question of should we, and they are launching uh, VOD uh, platforms, which was something that happened a few years ago and not always uh, successfully, but we see new attempts there. So do you see signs that streaming has changed uh, even positively the attitude of, the, of your audience that you can now work alongside with, uh, with streamers in a, in a more effective way? We are not back to where we were in 2019, are we? Oh, we've definitely, we've all learned a lot through COVID. I think uh, we've, you know, we've accelerated 10 years of learnings in three years. And I think it's something we're all grateful for in, in that, um, for that point. Um, I'm not going to talk about reasons for streaming. I'll leave that to Tony. You know, I run a publicly listed company as well. And there were different pressures through COVID and everyone needed the right story for the market and they were rewarded in different ways for those stories. What I take comfort in is I think we're, we're, right, we're heading back to a re really good place where we know that to make the most money out of a film, then you should really support all channels and Exhibition First makes that work. And I'm not going to repeat all of the research because it's been proven and it's been proven in a shorter amount of time. Uh, but in terms of, I think you touched on exhibitors trialling their own platforms. Uh, we have... Um, as many others have. Um, and the reason for us doing it was that we do believe that they coexist. Our most frequent moviegoers consume the most streaming content. Our most frequent moviegoers' frequency has not changed. <laughs> they're still coming to the movies and they're actually paying more each visit as we enhance the experiences. We, our approach into it was for a different reason. It was because we thought, well, if you do, it's, we do position it as you always want to go to the movies first, but if you're doing nothing and you're staying at home and you want to put something on in the background, <laughs> you can always uh, watch a film with us as well. Um, we did it because we wanted to understand the learnings between those customers and we rewarded customers um, back in cinema. So they weren't rewarded for watching at home, they're rewarded for coming back into cinema. Um, and look, it just proves all the points that are out there. There is nothing more powerful than exhibition. Full stop. It's where the money's made, it's where the quality statement is made, it's where customers want to be. And streaming, streaming is an add-on, <laughs> down chain, um, and, and uh, you know, I think they coexist. No, absolutely. And, and look, we've 
and, and it kind of touches on a point that we raised a, a bit earlier about the medium and smaller size titles. I, d I do think it's great news that there is content coming uh, publicly known from Apple and Amazon, but I don't necessarily think that that's a silver bullet because there's still a raft of other titles that we as an industry need to make work. The original titles, the ones that need more finessing, they're the ones we, ha we all communally have to make work. And I say this as a company, Disney, yes, we do have Searchlight, yes, we have 20th Century, and a large uh, proportion of our content is high-profile branded content blockbuster. But for this for this industry to succeed from an uh, from an exhibition and a distribution perspective, we do need beyond what other content you may get from the studios, Apple, Amazon. We need to make sure that the other titles work because that will attract the diverse audience. That will actually. Um, uh, make up for the shortfalls currently being seen in some of the box office, they're the ones that we need to make work. And it's true, and I think the last panel quoted the number, and we nodded a moment, because we talk about the 70 films last year, 105, building to 120, they're really important films, but we play 1,200, <laughs> 1,300 films a year. Like there is a really broad mix of content that we are exploring and playing and getting more confidence from. Great. And that was our CEO, Julian Marcel, speaking with Tony Chambers from Disney and Jane Hastings from Event Cinemas. Thank you so much for listening. The Box Office Podcast is a collaboration between Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. New episodes out every Thursday. Subscribe, rate, like, keep on supporting us, and we'll talk to you again next week. Woo!